This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and open it to the book of Galatians, chapter 2. This morning we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. As Paul is continuing his defense of the origin of the gospel. We come to a, a circumstance that's a little bit unusual. In reading it, it should cause us to scratch our head and ask the question, why did Paul include this? Because it seems out of place. And you'll see more in just a moment. So... With that said, I direct your attention to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas, now that's Peter, that's Peter's Aramaic name. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you... Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. In looking at the title of this message and seeing the picture that I place with that title, no doubt there are images of a western standoff taking the place in the middle of a dusty street with the saloon and hotel on the left and the feed store on the right as the hero stands facing his enemy with the townspeople watching. This image and actually this picture comes from the movie that really captured the American imagination in 1952. A film called High Noon where the town marshal played by Gary Cooper must face a man that he sent to the Huskow. The Huskow. That's a great word. Years before. And now he's gotten word that that man has been released and is coming back to the town looking for the marshal. And this villain, this prisoner, is arriving on the stagecoach at high noon. His arrival doesn't bode well. It's funny that the theme of arrivals has been a predominant point already in the book of Galatians. In chapter 1, there were teachers who arrived in Galatia who were seeking to add to the gospel. Now, I'd remind you, they're not denying the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ. They agree with that. They would be the first to say, we are saved by grace through faith because Jesus died on the cross and he rose again from the dead. That's not the problem for them. The issue is this. How does one know that you're saved? How does one know they're part of the people of God? The false teacher said, well, you know because you've placed faith in Christ 
and you adopt Jewish practices like circumcision and, and the diet, dietary laws. That's how you know. If a person professes faith in Christ, but they don't adopt those practices, then they're not part of the people of God. To which Paul is arguing, no, the way you know you're a part of the people of God is you profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, believing His death and resurrection. You receive the Spirit of God upon that. That's how you know you're part of the people of God. So Paul begins defending the gospel. The opposition has argued, Paul, you've made this up. That's a man-made gospel. This grace thing is good, but you're taking it too far. To which Paul begins defending his divine authority that he received the gospel not from man, but from God. He says, to prove the point, that I even went to Jerusalem to show that the, the pillars there, the leaders of the church, Paul, Peter, James, the half-brother of Jesus, and John, the brother of Zebedee, the son of Zebedee, I mean, agreed with this. Now, as Paul is recounting the story, he's moving around a lot. So hopefully just to give a visual and help us to get in place what is going on here. Um, I wanted to show this, and I know it's a little hard to see, but this is the Middle East. Now, the area that Paul is preaching in is Galatia. Some argue that it's in the northern part of what's modern-day Turkey. Some argue in the south. But as Paul has been arguing, he goes back in time, uh, probably about a year or two, down to Jerusalem. Where in Jerusalem, in this area, he says, I went, I checked the, this story with the pillars of the church. They agreed with it, even though, as you see in verse 4, false brothers secretly came in or arrived who began denying what I was preaching. So then Paul, in this passage we read this morning, he shifts gears. He goes from Jerusalem up to the city of Antioch. Now notice Antioch's proximity to the southern part of Turkey, which is Galatia. Antioch became the center or the base of Paul's operations. Antioch was a pretty large city. Scholars vary on the size of Antioch. Some say it was as small as 100,000 people, which is not small, as to many as a half a million people living in this metropolitan area that's considered the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. The unique thing for our purposes and for Paul is that it was a city primarily made up of Gentiles. Now a Gentile was any person that was either not Jewish or had not adopted the Jewish faith. To the Jews there were only two types of people, Jews and Gentiles. You're either one or the other. So because the gospel was taking root in Antioch right there, it became a test case for how is the church going to react and become one people. Antioch was a crucial place. As I said, it became the base of operations for Paul to the point that we're in Acts chapter 11. After Paul had been saved, Barnabas goes to Tarsus to get Saul. This is before Paul went by the name Paul. When Barnabas found him, where did he bring him? To Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Now this last phrase is crucial for our text this morning. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Christ followers. Notice that there is no adjectival modifier preceding Christian. There's no Gentile Christian and Jewish Christians. 
Just Christians. There's no American Christian or Russian Christian, just Christians. So it, the, the point here is, is the church going to be one or divided in two? And Paul is stating that our identity is in Christ. And as a sign of their oneness, as a sign of their unity, they were enjoying table fellowship together. Now this is not the Lord's Supper, even though the Lord's Supper may have been a part of it. This is simply believers coming together and eating around the table. That's how we get to know each other. Enjoying time together and eating is a part of that. So this is where the problem arises as recorded here in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. This conflict with Peter over eating with Gentile Christians. Now as I mentioned earlier, the question is, why did Paul bring this up here? I mean... Verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 is a victory. The early church leaders have said, Paul, we're with you on your gospel. We applaud it. We agree. We give it our stamp of approval. So why would Paul now record that one of those leaders, Peter, seemed to have had second thoughts? Some scholars believe that the issue was that the false teachers in Galatia were using Peter as an example. They were saying something like this. Yes, Peter agreed in Jerusalem with the content of the gospel, but in Antioch he came to his senses. And you can see by his actions that he believed you needed to adopt Jewish practices in order to be saved. So Peter became the hero to these false teachers. That's one idea. Others argue that this uh, point here, this narrative that Paul shares in verses 11 through 14 became the high point so far in the letter so he could introduce this explicit content of the gospel. Look down at verse 15 just for a preview of coming attractions. Look how right after he says, I confronted Peter, what does Paul explain? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. It's believed that this is what Peter shared, or Paul shared with Peter. It's believed this is the content with which Paul addressed Peter and said, Peter, you're missing the point. This is what's going on. In fact, because the gospel is at stake, that's why Paul uses very strong language in verse 11. When Cephas, and I believe that he shifts to the Aramaic to show this is the contrast of what Peter said in Jerusalem. Now, we don't even know who this guy is, as Cephas and what he's doing in Antioch. He says, I opposed him. Why? Because he stood condemned. That's strong language. Peter was condemned because his behavior was out of line with the gospel. You'll notice in verse 14, Paul says, When I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter stands condemned before God because he's saying one thing, this is the gospel, but he's living another. He's also condemned because he's going back on his previous stance. You see this when you look closely at the language of verse 12. Before certain men came from James, in other words, before teachers came from Jerusalem, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, what did he do? He not only drew back, and the next word is crucial, he separated himself. 
Now understand that what's taking place here is not a race issue. It's a religious issue. It's a purity issue. To the Jews, Gentiles were idolaters. And idol worship produced unclean lifestyles. To be in table fellowship with a Gentile, you were putting yourself at risk of being contaminated by their lifestyle and being pulled into idolatry. Think of it like this. Now, I don't know how it was in, when you were in elementary school, but I know in the Athens City schools, when I was in third or fourth grade, as a boy, you did not want to be around girls because they had cooties. And girls thought the same thing about the boys. They've got cooties. Don't get near them. Or think of it in more modern-day language. In the last three and a half years, we were introduced to two words that became commonplace in our vocabulary. Social distancing. Why did we socially distance? Because we were afraid that a person may be carrying the virus, and if we got too close to them, we could catch it. Religiously, that's why Peter separated. If I get too close to the Gentiles, I may be pulled into idolatry or their unclean lifestyles may contaminate me in some way. So when these leaders from Jerusalem show up, Peter begins to play the hypocrite. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically with him. So before these leaders arrived, the whole Jewish Christian population was intermingling with the Gentile Christians, forming one body, Christian, period. But now they're putting on a mask and playing a different part. That's what the word hypocrite means. It's one who wears a mask, acting one way when they're really something else. Peter had changed his behavior upon the arrival of the group from Jerusalem. And Paul says Peter was putting on a mask. And what hurt Paul, uh, Paul even more was Barnabas was doing the same thing. Peter had committed to one thing, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But now he's living something else. So the question is, how could this happen? I mean, you and I know Peter had his ups and downs. He goes from that high point of when Jesus said, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To a cold night in Jerusalem when he's standing by a charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest. And a slave girl, probably not even 12 years old, comes and says, aren't you a disciple? And what does Peter say? No, not me. I'm not a disciple. The height of the confession of Jesus' identity to the denial of Jesus as Savior. We know that Peter had these swings, but keep in mind that post-Pentecost, Peter's the one who preached the inaugural sermon of the church. Peter's the one who stood firm. So why does this vacillation occur? Well, the same thing happened to Peter that happens to you and I. Fear will cause us to act according to old habits the motivation is clear in verse 12 when they came these teachers from Jerusalem Peter drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party fear is what motivated Peter to fall back into the lifestyle he had known since he was a little boy that when we become fearful and stressed, we will fall back into the patterns of behavior that give us comfort. So why was Peter afraid? We have a clue. Look in Acts 11. Now, previous to this, Peter had received a vision that we should not call anything unclean. 
In other words, church, praise God, you're good to go with barbecue. And Peter sees this. And then he goes up and meets with a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. And Cornelius is saved and receives the Spirit. So Peter comes back to Jerusalem and says, you know what? Gentiles are getting the Spirit of God. We're one people. The Messiah has come. And look what happens. The circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to the uncircumcised men and notice fellowship comes up again. And you ate with them? So I can't help but wonder, was Peter just tired of being criticized? (laughs) Was he just tired of every time I turn around, I keep getting hit with the same thing, and I'm just tired of it, so it's easier just to throw up my hands and act in this way to take the pressure off. Maybe he was just tired of his reputation taking hit. Either way, he reverts back to what he had grown up with. Now the truth is, all of us are creatures of habit. We develop patterns of acting that we do without even thinking. We're all like that. In fact, over 75% of what we do every day is done by habit, without thought. And habits develop. When, when my grandchildren started to walk, we put up in our house a gate in one of the doors next to the kitchen. The gate created a little play. It used to be a dining room, but now it's a playroom. And it created a barrier so that if like Jody or my daughter Sue Ellen were cooking, they would have to walk all the way around instead of just coming into the kitchen. It was for safety. So I start learning if I need to go into their playroom or into my little office area, I have to walk all the way around. Well, the kids are older now, so we've taken the gate down. But you know what I still do? I still walk all the way around. Because for about two years now, that's all I've done. It's getting in my mind now. I can go through the doorway because the gate's gone. Why? I become a creature of habit. When we become stressed or fearful, we will go back to patterns we have developed to cope with that fear or stress. Maybe anger. It may be habits that we just disengage from everything going on. For some, the reality is it may even be pornography that's used as a stress release when we are fearful or anger. Habits that we learn over time. How do we break those habits? Because until the Lord returns, there's going to be stress in life and even fear. The starting point has got to be evaluation. At some point, we have to take a hard look and ask ourselves, when I become stressed and fearful, what do I revert to to alleviate that? We have to evaluate our habits. What does this habit look like? And how does it line up with gospel living? Does this habit glorify Christ? In the book of Corinthians, Paul himself wrote, All things are permissible, but not everything's beneficial. Is this a good habit? You know, an an Oreo every now and then is okay. But to get stressed and eat a whole bag is not a good thing. Believe me, I've been told that. Is it beneficial? Is it good for me? And to take a hard look without justifying things. One of the revolutionary war fathers was a man by the name of Thomas Paine. He wrote a little pamphlet entitled Common Sense where he argued that we should rebel against England. And in that book he wrote, A long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives it a superficial appearance of being right. Think about that. A long habit of just going on and saying, well, okay, and this is how we often justify it today. Well, I lose my temper because that's just who I am. I've always been like that. 
If, I, if I'm hammering and I, I hit my thumb and some words come out, that's just who I am. A long habit of thinking a thing wrong, of not thinking a thing wrong, gives it the superficial appearance of being right. So we justify it. The, the process of replacing bad habits with good, gospel, life-producing habits is called sanctification. Now, we are saved by grace. I hope you know that as I'm preaching through Galatians. You're going to hear it time and time again. In fact, it's going to get to the point where when somebody asks you, what did the pastor preach on? You're going to say he preached on grace, which I'm fine with. It's like, though, the old song, just as I am. God accepts us just as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. Sanctification is the process of changing our thinking and our actions so that both line up with the gospel. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, you're saved by grace, now work it out. And this takes time and effort. Sanctification is work. God gives us the spirit that leads us into it, but we have to apply the effort to, to pause and think before we act. To find reinforcement for godly traits. And I think one of the ways that Satan keeps us from pursuing sanctification is to think we have to do it by ourselves. Because we're afraid if I share somebody my struggle, they're going to judge me. First of all, anybody who judges another when a fellow believer says, I struggle with this, doesn't understand the gospel because we all struggle with things. That person sitting next to you struggles with something. Just like you do. And that's where we need the help of others. Because as we open our lives to others, we gain help to understand where we need to grow. Of course, as we mentioned earlier, today is Father's Day. Six years ago, or maybe it's five years, I think it's five years ago on Father's Day, my wife and kids gave me a set of golf clubs. And they have regretted it ever since. I confess to you, I've become addicted to the game. And one of the things that I learned as I started getting lessons and learning about the game is that I can think I'm doing something right. I can tell you right now, Roy McElroy, Tiger Woods got nothing on my swing until I take a look at my swing. And when I think I'm doing good, I'm not. But it took somebody else looking at the swing and evaluating it to help me know this is something you might need to change. I know it's easy to do that in golf. Maybe, maybe not. But it's taking that risk in life based on one word. Humility. And here's the good news. Even as you and I struggle with habits that keep coming back in the middle of stress, it does not change our status with God, our salvation, one bit. Because of this vital truth, you and I are made clean because of Jesus. That's what was at stake in Peter's actions. That truth is why Paul reacted so strongly. Remember, Jewish Christians were withdrawing from Gentile Christians because the Gentile Christians were still considered to be unclean. They were still considered to be idolaters. 
Paul is preaching that Jesus has changed all that. Table fellowship among believers was to be celebrating the fact that we are cleansed from our sin, cleansed from our idolatry by the life-transforming power of the Spirit. In fact, when the church comes together as one, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus has brought about the new age in Him where the Torah has been set aside and we are clean because of what Jesus has done. Jesus has accomplished what no work of man could do that is making us right with God. In Psalm 51, David prayed a prayer. He was confessing his sin with Bathsheba. And he said to the Lord, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Now hyssop was a, a weed that was like a scrub brush. You know why hyssop would get you clean? Because it took the first layer of your hide off. That's why it made you clean. And so David's saying, Lord, get the scrub brush out and make me clean because I have sinned. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Did you know that God answered that prayer of David by sending us a Savior who was the rose of Sharon to cleanse us so he didn't just remove the sin. He gave us a sweet-smelling savor of his grace. God answered David's prayer by sending the life-giving water to to wash us clean. And that is the only way we can be clean before God. I don't know about you. But when I'm sent to the grocery store to get stuff. I get overwhelmed. We are the victim of too many choices today. I kid you not. Jody will send me and say. Mark we need some detergent. Give me some Tide detergent. I will stand in that aisle looking at the Tide detergents and have to call my wife every time. What type of Tide do we need? Do we need the free and sensitive Tide, the clean and fresh Tide, the sensitive uh, scent Tide? Do we need the odor rescue Tide? Do we need the Tide with bleach? Do we need the Oxy Tide? Do we need the Tide that purifies? Do we need the Tide that saves colors? I don't know what to get. But praise God, there is only one Savior who cleanses us from top to bottom. And that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Church, remember, He is the answer to our failures. He's the solution to our sin. He is the balm for our wounds. He is the removal of our guilt. And in Peter's actions, he was denying all of that. He was saying, Jesus is not enough. That's why Paul reacted so strongly, because Jesus is enough. Do you notice something, though, that's very unique about this narrative? Paul doesn't tell how it ended. Read through the book of Galatians. There's no mention of the conclusion. We don't know if Peter said, Paul, you're right, I'm wrong. We don't know. We don't know if Peter dug in his heels and said, Paul, get over it. I walked with Jesus. Who are you? We don't know. But I think it's very interesting that even though we don't know the outcome of that particular confrontation, Paul kept on preaching. Paul didn't stop. You see, the gospel is the gospel no matter what. Whether Peter agreed and backed down or didn't, the gospel's still the gospel. That's why as a church we are committed to say no matter what happens, we keep preaching the gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. I love the story of what occurred in the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. The final event of that Olympics was the final event in every Olympics, the marathon. The runners had started off in the morning. 
But at 7 p.m., the city was beginning to get dark. It had been hours since the first place runner had crossed the finish line, and people were starting to leave the stadium when a sole figure wearing the colors of Tanzania came limping into the stadium. His name was John Stephen Aquari. He was the last man to finish the marathon in 1968. As he came limping into the stadium, it was clear he had taken a pretty bad fall. There was blood on his leg. There was a bandage on his leg with blood still seeping through, but he did not stop. The remaining people in the stands stood and applauded his courage. And when he crossed the finish line, reporters couldn't wait to get to him with one question. Why didn't you quit? With a quiet dignity, John Stephen Aquari said, My country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. My country sent me to finish it. So it is with our mission. Like Paul, no matter what happens in the culture around us, we are tasked with sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let us commit to do that. I want to ask you, if you will, to bow your heads with me. This morning, I ask you, if you have never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to consider that. And if you have questions about what it means to follow Him, I want you to know this is a safe place to ask them. Whether you come up to me during the invitation or wait till after the service, that's fine. But I ask you today, have you been forgiven of your sins in Christ? I'm not asking if you're good enough, for none of us are. I'm not asking if you do enough good works, because none of us do. I'm asking if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now to those who have already done that, those that are part of the family of God, I ask you, does fear and stress cause you to act in ways that are displeasing to God? What habits... Or the Spirit of God convicting you of now? Believe me, His conviction is an act of love because habits that are ungodly will not lead to a good end. But as we seek Him, and as we are led by the Spirit of God, we will learn the joy of God's grace and mercy. The altar is open this morning if you want to respond just in prayer to come and kneel and pray. Father, I thank you for the good news of salvation through your grace by faith. Thank you, Lord, for without that, we would truly be hopeless. So, Father, I pray that you would let the gospel take deep root in our hearts and in our thinking so that we will seek to live according to the gospel, treat others according to the gospel, and above all, share the gospel. Grant this, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.